0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting power here on YouTube with audio on Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere good podcasts are sold. Hey everybody. You can see things are a little different if you're watching on YouTube here. I am surrounded still by boxes and things. We're moving. Um, We're still in the process of it actually. We'll be finishing this weekend. And so I don't have anything set up behind me here. I hope the sound is coming in okay on this. I'm recording this in my new studio space, which I'm still, as you can see, still setting up here. But I got enough going to to get us going this week. So, hey everybody. You know, I have been studying this master's of um, psychology, of coercive control, doing this master's program on that. And um, I said that I would give you guys updates along the way as I am learning things, which I've been doing. And this episode is a whole episode about some things that have kind of really blown up in my sort of head or in my, my uh, world as a result, I believe, of the study that I've been doing. And I thought you guys would be interested in hearing about this. And it has to do with recovery. It has to do with getting over, um, you know, the Scientology experience, the cult experience. It has to do with re-acclimating into the real world at a level that I have not really depth, you know, gone down to the depths of before. I've, I, you know, we, we make the analogy Uh, in the recovery world uh, especially in the ex-Scientology world of onion layers coming off if you imagine an onion and you know the core of the onion being you but then all these layers added on top which are all the layers of indoctrination that come from a cult like Scientology you know and various other places we're all indoctrinated throughout our lives and all kinds of things but the destructive cult stuff is the stuff that goes in that we don't really think about too much. We don't challenge it. We don't critically think about it. It just kind of goes in and sits there and doesn't really get, um, well, as one therapist uh, put it that we were listening to, talking to this week, uh, you know, it doesn't really get chewed on. doesn't really get digested. It just sort of sits there, you know. And, um, and that information, those layers of indoctrination, affect how you think, how you act, what you believe, how you see the world, and in fact, have everything to do with how you, what you can even perceive, what you see, what you hear, what you feel. In other words, you know, because our biases can be so strong, they can be so laid in that it can actually uh, change our our ability to perceive the objective real world. If you have, let's say. You know, an intense prejudice or bias, which is really just another kind of bias, a a, a racial prejudice, let's say, then every time you see the target of your prejudice or your bias, you don't see objectively a human being standing in front of you. You see a fill in the blank with your racial epithet that you use, right, Um, to describe what you see. You see, you know, you see things through a haze, through a gauze, through a mesh, through a filter, and that filter is your bias, and these indoctrinated layers of onion that we that I'm that I'm analogizing here are what what drive those biases. Well, they they are the the, the biases, so to speak, and. Uh, and it is possible on reflection, on critical thinking, on, on you know, sort of using either from professional therapy or through education or through other means, it is possible to examine and re-examine these ideas we carry around with us and change them if we want to. They are, after all, our thoughts. There, you know, there really isn't a whole lot going on in your head that you can't do anything about. I'm not saying that there's, that, you know, that it's easy. I'm not saying that um, it, that doesn't take a whole lot of work. I could take years, It's taken me years, to get to what I'm going to talk about today. You know, this podcast has been uh, nine years in the making, <laughs> I mean, actually. So I'm not saying overnight you're going to be able to just change things just because you've changed your mind. You know, we have thought processes and action patterns and all kinds of things in us that, you know, that drive us and habits and routines and, and all that. So, so don't take, you know, what I'm saying too far or too extreme or anything. I'm really just trying to make the point that that if, if you can't do something about what's going on with you, then who else can? Really? Nobody. You know, you have to do the work and you have to, you have to dig in and you have to be willing to, to confront and deal with some pretty ugly stuff that can sometimes be buried deep down. And I'm going to go over today some ugly stuff that was buried deep down in me as a result of some of my Scientology indoctrination and and how that's been bumping right up against, I mean, smacking right up against what I'm trying to learn now on the psychology program and how reconciling these and integrating these and, and digesting fully, these ideas that, I've, that have been sitting undigested, so to speak, and you know, in my head or gullet or whatever, um, has been a process. And this is something I've been working on for weeks now, and uh, it will, like I said, it's nine years in the making really, but kind of stuff bubbling to the surface. And what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about psychology and therapy. Because what we've started learning about in this term is, uh, or this trimester, is the uh, therapeutic approaches to cult recovery or recovery from coercive control situations. Not just cults, but also domestic violence or um, intimate partner violence situations, human trafficking, control situations, gangs. I mean, it's all around us if you really open your eyes and look. And, um, and so coercive control, which is mind-altering, psychologically damaging stuff, Um, you know, often is helped through treatment. And there are lots and lots of different treatment methods. And while we were learning about these, and these were coming up, and we were going over, you know, uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or even art therapy, or motivational interviewing, or psychotherapy, standard classical Freudian stuff. I mean, all these things are still in play or are being developed there's um, cognitive processing therapy, CPT. There is uh, uh, trauma-focused CBT. I mean, there's a lot of different modalities of treatment you can choose from. And what I was learning and what I was having a difficult time with was how malleable, how, how changeable, how, how, how cherry-picking it can be for psychologists and psychiatrists to choose what treatment methods they're going to use for the person in front of them and how they're going to go about carrying out or executing these therapies because there isn't any one practice or one standard for how therapy should be conducted. There are ethical guidelines that give very, you know, sort of rules of the road but it's, in terms of the actual therapeutic processes or techniques, they're pretty plastic, pretty malleable. Right? They, you can kind of do different things with them and different people will try different things or customize them depending on who they're talking to. And I have, of course, said many times that... Uh, That it is an individual activity, it's an individual effort when you're dealing with a person in front of you who has, let's say, come out of a, you know, domestic violence or a destructive cult situation, and they are are traumatized, they're stressful, they are anxious-ridden, they're maybe even a little paranoid, they are confused, upset, there's a lot of things going on there. Um, you have to deal with that individual and you have to look at their upbringing, their problems, how, what, what their qualities, their attributes, their, their, their pluses as well as their minuses because everybody brings those too. We focus on the negative, but you know, in terms of therapy, you also have to accentuate and talk about and look at the positive as well. And, um, and this is the job of the therapist. Now, I'm not, by the way, in training to become a therapist. But this learning, this education is vital to learning about coercive control and how we deal with it. So that's why I'm learning about this stuff. And, of course, I do counsel people a little bit. I mean, I don't, when I I use that word very generically, I don't mean that I do it professionally or that I make a practice out of it. Um, I don't, haven't hung out a shingle or anything. But people do contact me all the time asking me for help or assistance or advice about this that or the other thing and i'm more than happy to give it um and this learning that i'm doing is only helping me to see how i could help better how i could be less judgmental how i could be a little more um uh broad in my view of people and how they act and what they want and what they're looking for you know there have been all kinds of new ideas and things presented to me and in, in looking at these therapies like for example this really blew me away You know, people will sometimes show up for therapy and they don't want to talk. You know, my whole life, and we'll go into this in more detail in a second, but my whole life growing up in Scientology, my whole concept of psychotherapy or assistant auditing, help, mental health treatment was problem solving. It had to do with, you know, having a problem and solving it. Well, there is a form of therapy that is single solution therapy. You go in and that day, we're gonna solve this problem, right, and we don't care why it's happening, we don't care you know, how long it's been going on or, or whether your Aunt Jemima had something to do with it. You know, we just wanna solve the problem right now and deal with it, right? however we're going to. And even that is a form of therapy. But it never occurred to me that somebody could show up for therapy who is just there because they want to be in a space with someone else who's not judging them, who's not telling them what to think about themselves or their life or their problems or their issues. They just, and they're willing to even put down money, pay for this in order to be able to sit there and not talk. And that itself can be a kind of catharsis or a kind of healing or a kind of therapy. And I just about fell out of my chair when I thought about that because it never occurred to me that somebody might have needs like that. But of course they will. Of course there are people out there who have a need like that and many other needs that have never even occurred to me. And this is one of the wonderful things about education is it's so mind-blowing, it's so mind-expanding because you get to learn about things that never would have dawned on you if you were just sitting thinking about it. And you might not have randomly or purposefully even found out about it if you had gone and studied up on or looked into the subject in some fashion because some subjects are kind of big, like therapy, you know. Okay, so where I'm coming from with this is my background of Scientology. And I have described Scientology in great detail in many videos, but let me talk to you about my attitude and ideas growing up and um, working in Scientology for decades about the subject of psychology and psychiatry. And uh, we all know that Scientology has all kinds of literature that is anti-psychiatry. They hate psychiatrists. They have a whole front group called the Citizens Commission for Human Rights or Citizens Commission on Human Rights, CCHR. And that group's entire purpose is to destroy, totally eradicate psychiatry as a subject from the face of the earth, literally. That's not an exaggeration. So Scientology has it in for psychiatry, no question about it. And I thought, It might help if I were to read to you from the scriptures, as I am sometimes want to do, and to give you a little bit of background on what I was indoctrinated in with psychology and psychiatry. Um, Now, Hubbard wrote lots and lots about psychiatry, but I just chose kind of almost at random just a couple issues here. And this is the first one I'm going to read from is from 24 September 1969, and it is an article from Freedom Magazine. Freedom Magazine is now pretty much an outlet of the um, Office of Special Affairs, uh, the Scientology Dirty Tricks Division, but uh, in 1969 is when L. Ron Hubbard first uh, sort of said, okay, let's do this uh, journal, this uh, independent journal published by the Church of Scientology called Freedom Magazine, and uh, he wrote in 1969 a bunch of articles for the magazine, and this is one of them, it's called The Fight for Freedom. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to give you enough of it to get a flavor for what Hubbard, how Hubbard talked about this subject. I think it'll be illuminating for you. Scientology's battle against psychiatry is receiving more and more support across the world. Largely unchallenged in the century after psychiatry's origin in Leipzig, Germany, and its steady and brutal campaign against the dignity and freedom of man, psychiatry hit its only major dissent in the early 1950s. Brock Chisholm, with his friends, which included Harry Dexter White and Alger Hiss, were very alarmed at Scientology's threat to their sweeping plans. Now, those three guys are, are famous names in the world of psychiatry. Let's just put it that way. Brock Chisholm. Um, was actually the, a Canadian psychiatrist, and he was the chairman of the World Health Organization. Um, Harry Dexter White was a um, a lawyer who defended Alger Hiss in his uh, in his espionage trial, and Alger Hiss was, of course, uh, you know, uh, charged with treason, espionage. Um, so Brock Chisholm, he's saying here, is friends with this guy who's you know a total loser who's getting Alger Hiss. And so he's, you know, death by association here, right? Uh, see, I'll continue reading. <clears throat> Secretly from cover, which was not fully exposed until last year, and remember this is written in 1969, they used every press and government channel they could hoodwink and control to discredit Scientology, its principles, and its organizations. Up until then, the groups of psychology and psychiatry had worked undetected for nearly 80 years in establishing an above-law dominance. There was some challenge in the late 19th century when authors occasionally exposed the psychiatric group as acting to do away with the rich relative so that some unprincipled family member would benefit and give the asylum keeper his cut. In the first quarter of the 20th century, the movies often portrayed their mad experimentations as inhuman, and the mad Russian doctor, quote-unquote, was a prime horror movie villain. With tactics which would have filled a confidence trickster with awe, the psychiatric front groups successfully wiped out all important criticism and by 1950 was secretly and successfully engaged upon a two-pronged campaign. A the degradation and dominance of man, and B, the harvesting of government millions. So this is L. Ron Hubbard's take on psychology and psychiatry. They are no good. They are not any good at all. They are, in fact, control operations whose only purpose is to degrade and destroy man as a species. That's the world I came from, and I grew up in it. So from my earliest years, this is what I was being exposed to and hearing. You know, this is... My mom didn't totally buy into this, but she never told me about any of that till years later. So I thought she was totally on board with this because this is what I was told Scientology thinks because this is what Elvin Hubbard wrote, right? And so this is what I grew up believing. There is another... Reference. I'm going to read a little bit from, just to give you a little bit more of what Hubbard says. This is from 1980, and it's called Criminals and Psychiatry. And uh, it starts out, Almost every modern horror crime was committed by a known criminal who had been in and out of the hands of psychiatrists and psychologists often many times. Uh, Again, death by association, right? Oh, he went to a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and then he went and killed people. Well, clearly, it's psychology and psychiatry's fault. Well, we could say he went to McDonald's, too. Is it Ronald McDonald's fault? Did he have a bad Big Mac? I mean, you see the logic here. It's really very bad logic. But... um, Hubbard ran with this logic very much. Now, this is how he describes psychiatry. He said, developed in the latter part of the 19th century, they appeared on the militaristic scene of a rearming and conquest-minded Germany. At that time, the arch-criminal Bismarck was laying the groundwork for the slaughters of World War I and World War II it fitted with the philosophy of militarism that man was an animal and that there was neither soul nor mortality standing in the way of the wholesale murder of war Hubbard liked to draw comparisons often between um, Nazi Germany and psychiatry and he actually took it earlier to the fact that psychiatry had its roots in Leipzig, Germany, in Professor Wilhelm Wundt. And uh, this was significant because Wundt was the first person to ever establish an experimental laboratory in psychiatry. And he mainly studied behavior, and he was interested in looking at at animals, rats, you know, rabbits, stuff like that, as well as people. And there was—and he was very, very prolific, Wundt was— and uh, anyway, you can go look into all of that. But Hubbard really, really liked to, like, lay in the German origins of psychiatry and, and and connecting that with the horrors of World War I and World War II on a direct causative relationship. These weren't ancillary relationships. These were psychiatry happens, mass slaughter of millions happens. These one follows the other. Um Yeah, he said that you know, psychology, psychiatry, and psychology find avid support from oppressive and domineering governments. Um, the employer of these people classifies even in the most generous view as criminal. So, really, all I'm trying to get across here in reading these to you is that I really, I really want to get across how Hubbard didn't just lamb base psychiatry because it wasn't workable or that it didn't cure mental illness. He actually said these guys are a gang of criminals who are war happy minded you know, money-minded uh, death minded people and these are their goals. So that's half the picture. Now the other half of the picture that I want to talk to you guys about that I've been running into lately um, and that's that's been I guess said this onion layer thing is how, is the indoctrination of Scientology auditing. Now, I've talked about auditing in great detail and case, supervi- case supervision and how auditing is done and, and how it's carried out. The thing I want to highlight today and then and, and that was going through my mind and, and that I kept running up against when I was reading and when I was learning about treatment modalities for cult recovery was the standardness, the way that Hubbard would describe and talk about how psychotherapy should exist and how he and the system he developed, which was based on the basic principle that there is really only one right way to do something. This was a big thing with Hubbard. It's a a fundamental principle of Scientology that there is really only one right way to do a thing, whatever that thing is. Painting a boat, cooking a chicken, auditing a preclear, same, same. There's one right way. And Hubbard emphasized over and over again that the technology, the methods, techniques, guidelines, principles, right, procedures of Scientology are to be executed exactly as they are written down and described. And you are to practice them through drills until you have it perfect And then you go into an auditing session as the auditor I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the pre I'm talking about the auditors. They have to practice until they're perfect. And then they have to go in and they have to execute the directions or the commands. They have to carry out the procedure of auditing. And the attitude of an auditor, the way it's sort of considered in Scientology, is that the auditor is a delivery system for Hubbard. Hubbard is the one who wrote the questions or the commands. Auditors sometimes have to wing it and figure out questions or commands or, or, or customize things to the person in front of them. But the processes and procedures of Scientology are very exact. You know, very rarely or very, very infrequently are, are you being asked as an auditor to do a lot of thinking it's a very rote process in many, many ways. There are places, don't no question about it, where you're going to run into situations that you're going to have to think and think fast and get your, you know, figure out how you're going to how you're going to solve this problem because the procedures create problems; they don't necessarily solve them. That's one of the problems with Scientology, of course, is it's not a very workable psychotherapy, and uh, in fact, it's quite destructive. But what I'm trying to get across right now is this principle that there's only one right way to do a thing. And you can see immediately, based on what I was saying earlier about how psychotherapy in the real world is done on a very customized roll-your-own sort of approach in many, many ways. I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate it by saying that. I'm just describing in general terms how psychologists and psychiatrists approach their profession you know, they have all these treatment modalities to choose from. They've got a person in front of them who's coming in with his particular issues or her particular problems, and they have to decide which modality is best for this person or combination of modalities, and that's how they go about treating this person. And that might involve pharmaceutical solutions for psychiatrists as well as therapy talk-based solutions or art-based solutions or in any number of different things that people can get up to in doing therapy, therapy in psychology. In Scientology, it's very not that. It is a very production line sort of activity. And we have this thing called the bridge to total freedom. And someone, uh, I, I'm going to use this because somebody gave it to me the other day and I thought it was great, is the bridge to total bankruptcy is what it really is. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but this, this bridge is a step by step laid out very exactly set of processes or procedures that are going to be done on you on a on what's going to be considered a therapeutic basis and you'll spend lots and lots of money and hundreds of hours eventually doing this processing work this auditing in Scientology excuse me and so where I obviously ran into huge issues and and was really doing my nut trying to sort this out was between this ideal standard. See, I know and I've known for nine years that Scientology is bullshit, right? It's bunk. the The auditing processes don't work. They are not helpful in a in a long term permanent way. They are certainly not doing what they purport to be doing, and this is not to say that nobody's ever had any gains from them. Of course, they have, but I'm going to be firm on the fact that auditing is not doing what it claims to be doing, and um, and I'm on I'm on pretty solid ground on that because the whole thing is a very subjective experience. Now, um, now so is a lot of psychology and therapy, right? But they're not see on the on the end of the, the difference is that in the area of psychology and psychiatry they're not over promising and under delivering. If anything, they're trying, they're taking great pains to try to not do that, to do the exact opposite, under promise and then try to over deliver. Scientology is the exact opposite. They over promise, you know, they'll give, they'll promise you the sun, moon, and stars, and they deliver to you you know, a thimble of lead. I mean, it's just it's awful. There's nothing, you know, no, no, you're not really getting anything at all out of, out of what you're paying for, and that's the problem. Um, and in fact, you could actually end up being even worse off as a result, which is, which is pretty bad. Um, okay, so I, anyway, I you know, I was hitting up against this, and, and it was interesting, because for, for a while, I didn't recognize that this is what was going on. And this is the hard thing about the recovery process, and I'm sure a lot of you out there who are listening to this will appreciate this because you've probably lived through your own experiences of this, where you, it takes a little while. You know, everything I'm describing to you right now has taken me a, a couple months to figure out because I've just been like, right? And you don't know where the confusion and the stress is coming from exactly. You know, I'm I'm reading these university I I'm i I'm I'm attending these university classes, I'm listening to these lectures, I'm reading this material and I'm like this just isn't right. There's something wrong about this. I don't like this. This isn't you know, this this is there's something off here. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't figure out what it was. It seemed wrong that it was so customizable that there was no standard to the methodologies and procedures of psychology and psychiatry. That was what I was having the mental struggle with because of this earlier indoctrination. And, you know, and, and I had to think about this for a while because once it started dawning on me where it was coming from, I was like, oh, okay. But I still thought that it was true that there, you know, that that the best psychology would be standardized methods that everybody could follow that would apply to everybody. And as soon as I thought that out loud to myself, like I actually finally realized what the basic problem was that I was having and I actually said those words out loud to myself, I went, oh my God, what a hopelessly naive statement. How could could you ever, I mean, I've actually even said out loud many times over the last many years, there is no one-stop, shop for therapy. There is no one method one size fits all. I've said that many times. And yet here I am bumping right up against that problem, that thought in my head, even though I've already acknowledged the truth of that because of this fundamental idea that this is actually how things should be this is this is it's a bias you see, it's a filter. It's, it's how I was looking at the world a little off. And it's quite something, you know, it really speaks to the, the way that, you know, thoughts can kind of come in and out in a way, you know, you can think one way, and then you can kind of think another way that you can kind of go back to think, I mean, you know, we're not really static, solid creatures when it comes to our thinking. And when you're sorting stuff out, of course, you know, there's all kinds of turmoil and upset in the in the recovery process, isn't there? And this is one of them. This is one of those processes. Because once I realized how naive that thinking was, man, it, it, it that was the thing that I needed to hit in order to kind of blow up that onion layer and go, oh, my God, I've hit another onion layer. That was actually, that was the next thought. Oh, my God, that's what this was. And then I had to really reevaluate. And this is where the critical thinking is just so helpful. Um and all the work I've been doing all these years on trying to be a better critical thinker and, and it really comes into play because then I had to think, okay, now I've got these two opposing ideas, you know, standard processes, one size fits all, this would, this would be a good thing versus the reality, the real world reality of what I am learning in my university studies, which is that there is no such thing. And in fact, everybody is wildly different. And, um... And science and and psychology and psychiatry are incredibly new subjects. And then I started thinking. You know, I went from thinking this this one size fits all thing is, is is a template I should overlay over this, you know, over these these therapy models I'm learning, and I should learn how to you know how to what's the technique, what's the procedure, and how should I do it standardly, right? And I went from that to going, oh, wait a second, this thing is still so young, still so developing. We are still in in, in its infancy. And there's been a lot of screwing around over the last hundred years with psychology and psychiatry, if we're going to be really honest, of course. You know, the the behavioralism and lobotomies and the electric shocks and the, and the, the, the horror stories of bedlam back in the day. I mean, people have been screwing around with other people in a really abusive, destructive way under the guise of helping them for a long time. Now, we've come past that now. We're out of that barbaric era, Um, but we now have still tons of question marks, so many question marks still, and this is why the treatments are still so uncertain, so unsure, so seemingly random, but... The thing is that in its infancy, I think any science kind of looks like that. Because if you look at, I happen to have a friend who's an evolutionary biologist, and I've had long talks with him in the past about the subject of evolution and how there are varying competing schools of thought in the, in this, in the, in, in, amongst evolutionary biologists. Because um, you have epigenetics as a, as, a, as a subject matter that has come up in the last 20, 30 years. And you have people who are pre-epigenetics who fight that. And they're like, no, no, man, epigenetics, not a thing. External, you know, uh, factors affecting evolution, not a thing. It's all the genes, right? Like Richard Dawkins, it's all the selfish gene. Well, there's competing schools of thought on this. And the epigenetic school is now winning out. Because science is a developing, organic, evolving, growing process, and it involves hundreds thousands of people, and they're all going to have different approaches and different ideas and different pros and cons that they're going to bring to the subject matter and different intent. Some are going to be, you know, very research-oriented. Others are going to be more therapy-oriented or help-oriented or world-oriented, you know, social versus individual versus education versus lab work versus, you know, there's lots of places to fit people, lots of niches within the world of any science. So all of these things are going to clash you know, we can't expect a unified movement that's just going to roll evenly forward smoothly down the road of progress. That's a pipe dream. That's not how people work. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm telling you all this stuff because this is what's been going on in my head for weeks now. It's like, oh, my God, right? I'm trying to resort this stuff out and, and rethinking, you know, because I was starting to really wonder. Here's, here's why this was important for me is because I was starting to have real doubts And questions and problems with whether psychology and psychiatry could even be considered sciences because the experimentation is so hit and miss. The replication problem is a problem. It's a huge one, right? The fact that experiments can be carried out on social sciences and psychology and not replicable. You know, you you, you carry it out and then Joe Schmo over here tries to reproduce your results and can't. That's a problem in science, Uh, in in how we approach learning and and progress and knowledge. So that has to be solved. But that doesn't mean that psychology and psychiatry can't be more, you know, can't be sciences or can't be considered as sciences or can't be pushed harder to do better as sciences. That's really the point is we can do better. It's not a matter of, oh, it's not doing a perfect job right now, so get rid of it, (laughs) which is Scientology's approach. Uh, we don't want that. We don't want to do that. We, these are the subjects that are tackling what's going on up here. and we and, and they're the best we got. And if we don't like them, well, then we need to do something about that and if, and, and we can all do that. So anyway, I, um, I thought that this might be, um, it's a small thing, seemingly, but it was the sort of thing that was incredibly powerful for me. Maybe because of the situation I'm in right now, where I'm trying to learn all about psychology now, um, way at, at, a, at a depth and layer that is much deeper than anything I had studied about it previously over all these years. I have I've I've done a tremendous amount of work learning psychology over all these years, so I'm not I, I haven't given it a. a uh, Licking a promise, but when you go to school, you're getting it really intensively, and then and, and it's just not the same. That's really what I'm trying to say. So, um, so I thought that maybe, in a way, what I'm running into might be helpful or useful for other ex Scientologists specifically, but also on a on a on a more general way might be useful for everybody out there who's doing a recovery process of some kind, right, is, is you're going to run into things that aren't going to look like they make a lot of sense. And they can cause a lot of turmoil, a lot of mental, you know, frustration, confusion, upset. And I really want to stress that, I, that that education, more learning more, and critically thinking about your past as well as your present and your future, right? And, and these and the information that you learn is a, it's an ongoing constant process. And if you can develop that skill just by working and working and working on it, it's practice that does it. Um, And you make plenty of mistakes along the way. Do not hold yourself to some kind of standard of perfection when it comes to how we think. You're going to make every mistake that can be made just like I have many times. But it's an incremental process of improvement. You know, it's not a rocket ride. It's an incremental thing. It's a marathon, not a sprint, I think is what I'm trying to say. And, um... And during those moments of crisis or confusion or upset or turmoil, you can, you can you know, you can introspect a bit and you can look and see, maybe I'm running into something here from my past. Maybe this is another onion layer. And it's now time for me to deal with this because this is kind of how the onion layers work is you know, the surface level stuff strips off pretty quickly and then you start getting deeper and then you start getting deeper. And then it seems basically like it takes longer for the next layer to kind of crop up. At least that's been my experience. i obviously, this isn't, I'm not saying this is universally how it is for everybody, but it's been how it's gone for me. And, um, but the significance, the importance of the layers as I go deeper and deeper, becomes more broad, more more relevant to every part of my life. This idea of a standard one way to do things and there's only one right way to do it has infected every part of my life. And it's just not true. There are many ways to accomplish almost anything. There are probably certain things that there is one right way to do it or a best way to do a thing, of course. But that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. It doesn't mean you have to hunt half your life to find it. If you can get it done through some other method or means, then do it. You know, if it's the the same product, then get it, right? It shouldn't really matter. But this idea for me was very, it was fundamental. And so it affected everything I did from learning videography um, to podcasting, to, to, to cult work, to marriage, you know, relationships. I mean, this idea really infected every part of my life. And, um, and kind of exposing it to the air and, and getting the chance to, to chew on it and look at it and think about it. Is this this where the critical thinking and the recovery process really work? And so I wanted to give this this week as an example. This is, you know, not my, this is a fairly short podcast comparatively, but I thought that it was important enough of a point and certainly significant enough for me to share with you guys and um and of course this is mainly targeted to those of you out there who are engaged in a recovery process but for friends and family out there who are listening to this right now i hope that this information that i'm giving you and my experience here can be helpful for you in helping other people if you have family or friends who are recovering from a traumatic episode or situation ptsd uh, domestic violence, etc. You know, all of these things are still applicable, and uh, those onion layers of of false information, of wrong solutions, of indoctrination, they're gonna come up, and they're gonna, and they're gonna, they're gonna, you, you know, you're gonna want to work on stripping them off, and um, and critical thinking is the, and education is the way to do that. So. That's my message for this week. I hope it was useful, helpful. I hope, you know, I don't know how entertaining this week, but um, but I wanted to get that out because I thought it would help. And it is a major reflection of the progress of my studies that this is, you know, riling up and, and helping me with my own process. And that is, you know, some of the, one of the reasons why I'm doing this program. Um, it's not faux therapy. I don't mean it that way. But, but I, what I do mean is that education is an acknowledged part of the recovery process. And in fact, psychoeducation is almost, um, you can't not do it if you're going to really recover from a cult situation. Um, that is a judgmental statement. That might be a statement that rubs some people the wrong way because, you know, maybe they haven't engaged in any any real education work or aren't interested in that. But I'm telling you from my own experience and and learning on this that it is only going to help to learn about yourself, learn about how people work, and and learn about how cults work and indoctrination and all that. So anyway... That's my message for this week thanks for coming around and listening guys and um next week i'll hopefully have this a little bit more set up here and uh anyway there we go if you enjoyed the show and think that this channel is useful helpful uh should be supported then of course you can support me through patreon or through paypal links are below in the description section of this video on youtube as with every one of my videos Uh, so there you go. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.